Thank you guys so much for dragging yourselves out of bed on a Saturday and, and coming to uh, build. It's it's great to be together. This is by one of the highlights of of my year and what I get to do at Grace Bible Church and how I get to serve. I just I love being here with you guys. So um, thanks for for being here. You are embarking on something that is not scary, but that is actually really good and um, is has borne a lot of fruit in our church uh, and hopefully will continue to bear fruit in the church and hope in, in your life. Um, hopefully what we'll be talking about over the course of it this coming year will be something that you will never graduate from um, in regards to taking care of your heart before the Lord. Let me um, take a look at your notebooks with you. You need to make sure that you uh, have got one. Let's do this. We've got to go around the table, so we've got to figure out who everybody is. So what I want you to do is I want you to give your name, and I want you, I want you to tell us how long you've been coming to Grace, okay? And to the best of your knowledge, how long you've been walking with Christ. Because some of us know that, and some of us are, are not as clear as when our conversion was, which is a-okay. So those three things, your name, how long you've been at Grace Bible Church, and how long you've been walking with Christ, okay? We'll start with this back table over here. John, you start us off? Sure. Uh, my name is John McGuire. I've come to Grace Bible Church since 2001. When it was East Valley Bible Church, technically. When it was East Valley Bible Church, technically. Yeah. Um, and I can point to about the year 2000, and say, at that point. <coughs> wow, great. great. Uh, my name is Max. Uh, my wife and I moved to Phoenix uh, last August, and I started going to Grace then. Wow. Um, and I meet the Lord when I was six with my grandparents in Pennsylvania. Excellent. Um, Micah started coming to Grace in May of 06. And um, I like to go with last year sometimes. So I really, you know, I can't remember the side of these really was, but growing up it was kind of you unclear. Know, um, My name is Bobby, Bobby Cassis. Uh, I've been coming here since uh, the very beginning of January this year. And I've uh, uh, been saved since uh, October of 1990. I'm Kenny. Uh, we've been coming here since last September. And we've been saved, give or take a few months, uh, I'm not sure, but about seven years now. Great. Yeah. I'm Daniel. I've been coming to Grace for about six months now, um, and I've been saved since I was about five. Good. Let's jump over this table. Tom, let's start us off. Uh, Tom Trout. Uh, I've been coming here since January of 2008. I've been a Christian, uh, born again Christian, in 1977. Mm-hmm. So it's a little bit longer than some of you here, probably. <laughs> 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 Bob Myers, uh, known the Lord a long time, but uh, didn't really have a relationship until about 
think our relationship with Christ, I don't, I don't really think with Christ my whole life, but I don't really feel like I came to complete terms with it until I was probably about 18 or 19. My name is George Siegel. I've been so many grades since the summer of 09. And uh, you got saved me in uh, June of 2000. That's great. I'm Randy Sidney. I've been to since October last year. Wow. Can you imagine that, some of you guys? <laughs> Walking with Christ for 35 years. Dave Bauer, uh, I'm coming to the Grace for about two months. And uh, I've been a Christian in the 60s. The 60s. Let's jump over to Matt, you too. Uh, my name is Matt Dodd, and I've been going to Grace since, uh, I think, 2001 as well. And uh, I've been saved since I was, I got saved in eighth grade, so I was 14, so that was 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. You can do the math. <laughs> <laughs> my name is Losa Kuna, and uh, I was saved on February 14, 2009, and I came to Grace right after that, right at 15, which is a Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I was uh, baptized on the 7th in June, so I've been here for a very short time, but I've learned a lot more for a long time. Yeah, great. Uh, Craig Carmichael, I've uh, been coming to Grace for 2006, 2007, somewhere there. Um, been a believer since... Uh, June, uh, actually uh, November of '98. Uh, I am uh, David Malstrom. Been attending Grace with my wife since uh, November 2007, and uh, Lord made me new in uh, November 2002. Great. I'm Greg and I've been coming to Grace almost over three years, and. Uh, I've known the Lord for almost about six years. Great. Uh, my name is Bill Clay. Uh, I started coming to church like six years ago, then I moved away for two years. I've been back for about a year. And uh, I've known the Lord, I think, since my mid to late teens. So about eight or ten years. Very good. Mike. I'm Mike Henderson. Um, I was saved four years ago, I think. And I've been coming here for about three months now. Kevin, do you? My name's Kevin. Um, <coughs> come to Grace the last three months. And uh, I think I'm sure that I was saved um, about three years ago. Okay. <coughs> My name's Aaron Whitby. Um, I'm coming to Grace for about a year now. I've known the Lord since my youth, but I say that I've just been saved maybe a few years ago. And for the gospel for what it's really worth and since we've been coming to Grace. Mm-hmm. Okay. Jerry. My name's Jerry I'm coming to Grace for a little bit over a year. I'm just kind of introduced to the
That's right. That's right. I, I think of you as coming after I came, but you were here actually before I came. And I just got to meet you when you came back. That's right. Ethan. Uh, I'm Ethan Rohde. Uh, no December 2001, and I've uh, been coming to Grace since 2002. Very good. Uh, Eric Composure. Um, came to Grace last week of June 2007. Um, I'm probably saved probably a couple months after that, about a year and a half. Joe. Joe Marcuson. I've been to Grace since August, and I've been saved for three and a half years. sheet on the table over there like there was this morning. Just mark your name off as you come in and you'll want to pick up um, one of the paper clipped things like you took this morning that has what you'll need for that morning. That will be given to you. And the notebook, the point of that is, is you'll take those notes that you get and just put them in your notebook. Um, your notebook is um, broken down into different categories. If you'll open it up, I'll kind of walk you through what's there. Um, you'll see it in the, the beginning in a kind of a plastic protector thing there uh, is our schedule, when um, when our meetings are, uh, and what we'll be talking about each time. It's off to the right under the discipline you'll see there. Um, at the top it tells you we meet on Saturdays from 6.30 to 9 in the morning and um, right here in this room. And I think it has everything there for you that, you'll, that you're going to need. Okay. Uh, if you'll flip over that and go, then you'll start seeing you have some tabs. Um, D1, the heart. D2, the home. D3, ministry. D4, qualifications. And then D5 and D6 are under one on um, the biblical, theological, practical, and the vision. I'll talk about all that stuff here in just a minute. But whenever, which, whenever you get from me on, uh, on Saturday morning, you just look at the top of it, and it'll basically tell you what you've got. If we're talking about discipline one, the heart, or discipline two, the home, and then when you're all when it's all said and done, you just put it in whichever category you have there. Okay. So there's basically how the notebook works. Um, I'll probably come back to that in a moment here and talk a little bit more about it. Um, the way that we conduct our time together in here um, is what um, I have learned from Tom and Ann Engstead, uh, who Tom will be in here with us when when he gets back from some vacation. But the way we do this in here is family style. Uh, if you want something, if you need something, 
you just help yourself to it. You just get up and walk over and get more food, get more drink. The bathroom is down this hall, down that way, on your left towards almost to the very end. Uh, so you just get up and get down and, and help yourself. If you have a question, just raise your hand. I mean, just interrupt anything. We're just we're just here talking. There, there'll be sometimes when it's when it's me, you know, throwing at you as much as I can throw at you from God's word. But you're, hey, Dre, guys, on the table there. I should. Were you responsible for their tardiness? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> at least the last minute. Oh, you were. So you could have walked faster with them. Yeah. You guys need a notebook there that has your name on it, and make sure you get one of the paper clipped um, deals there, uh, the handouts as well. And then you can come over here and join the Pagel table. Um, <laughs> balance that out a little bit. So um, anyway, just get up and down as you want and um, as you need and ask questions as you want, okay? That's the way it works. Um, the elders that are primarily overseeing BUILD, especially this year, is myself and Tom Angstead. And Tom will be a regular part of our time together. And then we've got a, a few guys who are going to assist us with small groups because we will be breaking into small groups during the time, um, every meeting except for today. Um, and the guys who are helping with small groups are John McCoy here in the yellow, Matt Dodd in the blue, and um, Eric Martin will also be a part of the small groups, but he is right now um, uh, in Ohio uh, watching a football game. <laughs> Attending a football game with his son. We'll pray for him. He's discipling his son in probably the worst way possible. <laughs> but anyway... Yeah, he was a, yeah, he's a huge Buckeye fan, and um, it was his chance to take his oldest son to a game with his parents and stuff. So I didn't even hear what happened today. Oh, it's today. I think it was Sunday. Never mind. We'll figure it out. All right, so let's talk about Build a little bit, what it is. Look at your notebook on the very back. If you just flip it over and lay it face down, you'll see a, uh, an insert in the back there that just talks about what Build is. Um BUILD stands for Becoming United in Leadership Disciplines. And really that's what we want to do is we want to take the men of the church, um, anybody who would say, I'm I'm a Christian, I've I've given my life to Christ, I've repented, I've believed, I'm following Christ, I I want to obey Jesus Christ, I've, I've been born again, and Grace Bible Church is my home. I don't care if Grace Bible Church has been your home for a day, a week, three months, whatever it's been for you, or ten years. Um, we want to grab any guy who's a Christian who's in Grace Bible Church, and we want to begin to say, guys, we need to unite as men in this church around these leadership disciplines. And really, I think they're, they're biblical, spiritual disciplines. And so that's what we're doing is we're calling the men in the church around these things because we want the leadership of this church to be prim- obviously men. And we want it to be a united understanding of what the elders here at Grace Bible Church think biblical leadership should look like. Um, my experience at other churches that I've been at is uh, I was a youth pastor for 10 years. I had to figure out my own way to develop my leaders in my ministry in my corner of the church. And so I did. And I love doing that. It's, a, it's like my heart to want to do that. The guy who was running children's ministry and all of his workers, he had to figure out the way that he was going to go train his workers. And so I developed my philosophy of ministry for youth ministry, and children's ministry developed their philosophy philosophy for ministry for uh, theirs, 
and developed their leaders according to the way they did it. And we were using the same book, obviously a lot of similarities. And yet at the same time, it was like, why were we doing two different things and people were hearing kind of almost different things about what it looked like to be a, a leader. And, um, and what we want to do here is say, it doesn't matter where you're at or where, what ministry you're in, this is what we want all of the men of the church to unite around. We want to be united around this view of biblical leadership. And then as you go into youth ministry or children's ministry or whatever it is you're in, yeah, there's going to be particulars that you're going to need to be trained in specifically for that arena, and we'll let those ministries do that. But we believe there are some common things for all of the ministries. It doesn't matter what kind of man you are, where you're going, you need to be this kind of a man in every single ministry in, in the church. So we're wanting to call you out um, from the body to unite you around these biblical leadership disciplines in order f- that this church would be strong with the gospel. That's what we want. This is not ultimately, yes, it's about you. It's about you becoming a stronger man. But there's something much bigger that, that you and I are a part of. And that's the gospel mission of Jesus Christ through this church in particular. And if you're making Grace Bible Church your home, what we want you to do is be strong here with us to help the gospel go forward into our own lives and even beyond our lives outside the walls of this church, okay? So that's what we're doing. We're calling men out in the church to become united around these leadership disciplines so that the church can be strong. And in particular, we've identified six disciplines that we want to call ourselves to, put in the middle of us, all hold hands around, sing kumbaya on that whole thing, okay? This is what we want to unify around. The first one is the heart. Discipline one. The leader must be disciplined to prayerfully shepherd his own heart toward Jesus Christ through the word of God. The shorter form of saying that is you need to shepherd your heart to the word of God to get the God of the word. It is far too easy as men to come to the word of God for a whole lot of reasons that fall short of Jesus. And we'll talk about that today when we finally get into our um, study of the heart a little bit later. But you must be a man who's disciplined to prayerfully shepherd your own heart towards Christ through the word of God. The word of God is open before you as a man. You're disciplined to bring your carcass before it, to drag your heart before it and say, God, if I don't get Jesus Christ, if I don't draw near to him, I will, I will, I will evaporate. I will die. I must have Christ. And this is the kind of man you must be. Everything flows from here, guys. Everything does. You have so much to say to people. You have so much to give to people if you become a man who's disciplined to shepherd your heart to the Word of God to meet with God. You have so much to say to people. You have so much to give. You will be overflowing with Christ. If you don't do this, what are you going to say to people? What are you going to say to your wives, guys? What are you going to say to your children? And what are you going to say in your small group? How are you going to come alongside people if you haven't been bringing your heart to the Word of God to meet with God, to know Him, to love Him, to serve Him? Everything flows out of discipline one. You get discipline one, the others will come. Miss discipline one, and all of the rest of them are bankrupt and empty. Okay? Discipline two, then, focuses on the home or the household relationships. The leader places a priority on spiritually influencing his household with his heart for Christ. Um, we'll talk about this throughout the year. That The first thing you're going to be thinking of is, wow, it's interesting. God placed me with some people that I live with on a regular basis. I see them potentially consi- more consistently than I really see a lot of other people. 
um, I need to place a priority on making sure that I'm bringing Christ and the gospel to them. Um, that I'm making an influence, that there's an aroma that comes off of me in the place that I live, and it's the aroma of Christ. And I want to make that impact there. I'm not going to play leapfrog over that and just say, well, I just live with those guys. I just live there with these people. But I'm going to go run and do all these other things outside the home for ministry for God's sake. Um, We don't play leapfrog over our hearts. We're not going to play leapfrog over our homes and the household relationships that are there. Obviously, if you're married, if you've got kids, and family in your home like that, uh, that is particularly, um, uh, Scripture has very specific things to say. I think there's also an indirect application for you if you um, are living with roommates um, or or whatever. Um, As one who is watching my kids grow up and my my daughters grow up and still praying fervently that Jesus will come back before they date. Um, (laughs) And I think about a young man someday coming and wanting to say to me, "I'd um, I'd like to marry your daughter. One of the first things that I'm going to be interested in, if he's a single guy and he's living with a bunch of guys, one of the things I'm going to ask him first is, tell me about your heart. I want to hear what your heart is like for Christ. I want to tell me what your heart is like with the Word of God. What, tell me about how your heart interacts with the Word of God. Secondly, tell me, tell me what your relationships are like with your roommates. Because before I ever release my daughter from under my care, or any, either of my daughters, from under my care, um, I'm the one who's trying to shepherd their heart towards Christ in the Word of God. I'm trying to do that as a man who's you know, doing that himself. And um, before I, I say, you know, go live under this guy and under his care, I want to know what his heart's like. And, and look, it's, it's a joke, guys, to think that you don't have to care for your, your roommates. You can, you can be like ships that pass in the night. You don't have to be kind to one another. You don't have to serve one another. You don't have to be humble with each other. To think that you don't have to be that, but all of a sudden when a girl comes, you'll be that kind of roommate. You won't be. So be faithful in the little things first, the people you live with, regardless of who they are. Demonstrate to God that you understand that this is very important. This is good training for the day when when a wife comes and, and when children come. So that's the home. Discipline three is the ministry. So with a heart for Jesus Christ and a household following his lead or being influenced by his his uh, gospel life, the leader is ready to step into the church to shepherd others toward Jesus Christ um, in and with the gospel. So here's where I have found most, what happens in, in most churches when it comes to churches being desperate for, especially male leadership. Uh, a church recognizes that a, a guy comes, he has a pulse, and he seems to be excited, and so we just grab him, and we pull him in, and we say, you, sir, thank you so much. And we haven't asked any questions about, okay, well, what's he doing with his heart? And what's he like at home? And the temptation in churches is for guys to see needs in the body like, oh, you need a Bible study leader? Oh, dude, I would love to do that. And not think about some other things first before that. And so these disciplines are trying to put in order the things that need to have a priority. Because again, everything flows from discipline one. If your heart is full of God in Christ because of the word of God, oh my goodness, you got to be teaching a Bible study. You have to be in the church. And if you're not, probably don't want you opening the word of God to people. Does that make sense? So we eventually want you to be in the body ministering, caring for people. Now let me ask you this. 
is this strictly sequential? In other words, you only do discipline one until you finally take the test and graduate from it, and then you move to the home, never to think about the heart again. Of course not, right? And the same thing with then going to the ministry. No, these things have to overlap, and they have to take place at the same time. You don't not minister to people because you're working on discipline one and two. Um, you have to care for people in the body. But there's a priority in your thinking. There's something that has a whole lot of center of gravity to your life. And it's, i got to shepherd my heart, and I'm not going to play leapfrog over my household relationships while I care for people in the body. Now, the interesting thing is in Discipline 4, we, we set the qualifications for biblical leadership, like deacon and elder, primarily deacon and, and build. Um, if you look at the deacon qualifications in 1 Timothy 3 and the elder qualifications in 1 uh, Timothy 3 and in the Titus chapter 1, what you'll find is all of those all of those character qualities that a man must have and be primarily fall into discipline one, two, or three. What kind of a man of God is he? What, what kind of a man is he with his heart? What are his household relationships like? He has to manage his own household well. And what's he like with just people in general? Is he a fighter? He just like to contend and you know, is, is he able to defend the sound doctrine? Um, so really then we just set the, the qualifications out as kind of a summary discipline over the first three. And we say, guys, put these disciplines in front of your life or these, these uh, qualifications in front of your life and pray to God to make you a qualified man in the church for either deacon or elder. Every single man should set those qualifications before himself and say, God, I want to be the man that you want me to be for the church and for the gospel. Um, so we'll get to discipline four and talk about the qualifications. Discipline five is kind of a catch-all category. It just means that whatever biblical issue there is, whatever theological issue there is, whatever practical issue there is that comes up in the church, we want to make sure we address it. Um, that means there may be a, a, an issue outside of the church. I remember one of the things we did is way back when the, the Da Vinci Code came out, we started talking about some of those kinds of things so that we were able to interact with people outside who were seeing that and buying that hook, line, and sinker, and we wanted to be guys that were able to speak to that. So that was an issue we dealt with. Practical ministry issue, we've had things to have to deal with between church-to-church -church relationships where we had to shepherd the men of our church to help them understand what was going on. It's just whatever comes up, we're going to address it here if we need to. Okay. Um, last year, somebody asked when we were dealing with Discipline 2 on the home, they said, um, can you just help us understand what it means that husbands love your wives? And so I just that stuck in my head and in my heart all year, and by the end of the year, we just took a whole session just talked about what it means for husbands to love your wives. That's a, a biblical issue, and we've got to address it. So we're just saying, and Bill, this is the place to do that. Um, and discipline six, finally, is the vision uh, of the church and the purpose. The leader in Grace Bible Church embraces our biblical vision and equips others to participate in our gospel purpose. So what we're saying is this church has come up with a vision and a purpose. It's God-glorifying, cross-centered, life-transforming. Uh, we have drawing in, building up, and sending out leaders in this church. You've got to know that, breathe that, love that, and want to see others get drawn into that. And so we'll put the vision and the purpose of the church before you as well. So there's your overview of where we're going to go. If you look at your schedule at the front of the notebook again, you'll notice that not all of these disciplines get equal time. In fact, 
which one gets most of the time? The heart. The heart. And that's the <coughs> reason. Um, we want to make sure that we're majoring on the heart and then spend a little bit less time on the home and then a little less time on the ministry and then the other things kind of take care of themselves as we go, but we're really trying to focus on the heart the most that we can. Okay? Does that make sense? All right, now jump back into your notebook because I want to show you a couple things that are there. <clears throat> go to um, the first tab, the heart, and you should see first there a, um, a list. Discipline one, the heart. These are heart categories for consideration. When, when we first came up with this, and I, I started doing work on this um, way back when we started this, probably in um, 03 or 04, I forget, um, I just started going through the Bible, and I looked at every um, usage of heart in the New American Standard, and I just went through it, and I just wrote them all down. I had this huge long list that went from Genesis to Revelation on, on the heart. And then I went back through that list again, and I started noticing, oh, th these are the verses that say, that connect pride or arrogance with the heart. I'm going to put that in a pride or arrogance category at the heart level. Oh, this one talks about deception and the heart. The heart is deceived, deceitful, and gets deceived. Um, I'm going to put that in, a, in its own category. And so I just started making these categories, and that's what this is. You're going to find things that you're going to go, I don't understand this thinking, why that's in a category of its own. And so there may be things that need to change and get tweaked a little bit, um, but th th that's just for your for your uh, resource that you can look and, and take a uh, and maybe even add to it. Okay. Um, turn to the next page. that's after that. It's, it's at the very back of the heart. D1, the heart. The 856 occurrences of heart in the New American Standard, and you can just see kind of the breakdown by book. How many times it appears in the Book of Genesis, Exodus, all the way to Revelation. We're going to talk about that the next time we're together. Go to the second category, or the second discipline, <coughs> discipline two. You'll see the same thing, categories for, home categories for consideration. I just went through the Bible, and I just tried to say, okay, where, where do you have passages where something that's going on with household relationships is, being, is a part of the story of what God is unfolding about himself? And so I just went through that, and it's just ways to make observations to get a sense for what God's heart is for the family and for household relationships as you work your way through the Bible. Um, obviously, there's not as much uh, as compared to the heart. Let's go to Discipline 3. Discipline 3 is um, the ministry categories for consideration. Same thing, just walking through the Bible, looking at, okay, where do you see men, where do you see the, the people of God interacting with each other in a way outside <coughs> of household relationships, and, and how they're supposed to care for one another. So there's lots there about, you'll see about how Moses dealt with people, um, how David dealt with people, Samuel, etc. Okay, and then into the New Testament. Um, next discipline, discipline four. Uh, those are primarily the passages that we want to set before you concerning deacons and elders and their qualifications. So we will spend a whole time later after in, in 2010, Lord willing, on Acts 6 and a whole time on 1 Timothy 3 to make sure we really understand what deacons are and what they are not. Um, so there are some passages for you to consider there. And then, uh, let's see, Disciplines 5 and 6 is kind of, and also it's kind of just a catch-all at the end that we just put everything that we don't where to put it at the end. Um, there's obviously not one for um, the our vision because that just doesn't work to do it that way. Uh, but you do see your small group, cat, your list there, and that's 
uh, what we'll at least start off with, um, having you in small groups that way. Um, and every time we're together, except for today, we'll, we'll spend some time at the end, 45 minutes to an hour in small groups each time we're together. Okay. Now, behind that, if you take a look, there are a few different reading plans, uh, Bible reading plans. The first one is a 52-week Bible reading plan. It just takes you through um, the whole Bible in a year, but it does it in an interesting way. Um, I did this for most of this year and stopped for some reasons that I needed. I was doing some other things, but I really liked it because it was just something different for me from what I normally do. Um, on Sundays, you're reading um, the epistles. Then on Monday, you're reading the law or the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. Tuesday, you're reading the history books, which will also take you into you're reading the Old Testament history. Um, Wednesday, Psalms. Thursday, the poetry outside of Psalms. Friday, prophecy, which includes Revelation down at the bottom. And on Saturday, you're reading through the Gospels and Acts. Okay? That's a very interesting way to do it. Um, I liked it. I thought it was really good. Um, enjoyed that for the time that I did do it. The next one is my favorite, uh, McShane's Bible Reading Plan. Um, it's my it's my all-time favorite. You can take these and just kind of cut them out if you want. But what McShane's Bible Reading Plan is, is uh, you're reading through the, 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 the Bible once in a year, but you'll get through Psalms twice. How does it work? Do you get who, who's doing Psalms and Proverbs twice, and um, the New Testament twice. Is that right? Yeah. Um, and it, but you're reading about four chapters a day. Um, but it's a great. Um, I really like it. You're reading from four different parts of the of the Bible at, at once each day. And then there's just the plain old chronological reading plan at the very end. And we, we have it set up on a schedule that starts in October for you. And you say, now why is this in here? Well, because your main primary assignment for build is you need to read through the Bible in a year. I hope that you will get on a, on a, on a schedule and in, a, in a, a routine that you will read the Bible through from Genesis to Revelation every year for the rest of your life. Um, men in the church need to be familiar not with their five favorite books in the New Testament that they read every single year over and over and over and over and over and over. You need to be familiar with the Bible. You need to understand what, uh, who the God of Moses is. He's your God too. And you need to see how your daddy was with his children a long time ago. And you need to know this God and how he interacted what his story in the Bible is so that you can Number one, feed your own heart on that. And secondly, so you can care for people in the body well. So many illustrations are, are in the Old Testament for us. Uh, examples in the Old Testament, Paul says, for our instruction. Um, so we need to make sure that we are men who, if we're going to be full ourselves and equipped well ourselves before God, that we know the Old Testament and the New Testament, um, but also so you can step into other people's lives and care for them with God's word. So what I'd like for you to do, your, your first assignment is by October 1, you have to have picked one of these. Or you know what, if you have a different reading plan you want to do, I don't care. The point is, be on a plan by October 1 to read through the Bible in a year. Okay? And we'll try to just help you and be an encouragement to you along the way. Every Saturday we get together and say, how's it going? 
and what to do when you fall off the bandwagon, because you will fall off the bandwagon. You probably will have some days where you'll miss. You might even have, hopefully not, a week where you miss. What do you do then? We'll just be an encouragement to you along the way and, and give you some pointers, okay? So um, that's what you need to do. Uh, let's see, what else do I need to tell you? What can you expect each time on a Saturday when you come? Uh, you can expect that the doors will be open early, that there will be coffee, drink, and um, some snack over there uh, if you want. And you can expect that we will start as close to 6.35 as we can. Um, I want to make sure that we're using our time well, that, you are, that your time is being respected as well. You make the sacrifice to get up and be here. Uh, for those guys who do that, I, I don't want to start at 6.45. I want to start close to 6.30 if we can, 6.35 or so. Okay. You can expect that there will be teaching for about an hour when we get together. And that you will have your one ongoing assignment all of the time, which is to read through the Bible. Um, and if, by the way, if you're already on a Bible reading plan, I'm not asking you to, to jump off of that and to pick one of these. Stay on it. Just keep doing what you're doing. Okay? But then you will also each week get an assignment that will be due for the two weeks afterwards when we have our uh, next class together. Most of those assignments are self-evaluation kind of assignments where based on the teaching or based on what's on the handout that I give to you, it'll say, go home and now give some thought to what's it like uh, when you open God's Word. Write out, tell me, I want to know, what's it, what do you do with your heart when the, when the Bible's open? Do you ever think about your heart when the Bible's open? And you say yes or no or not very often, or, or you just, you're doing self-evaluation. There will be some assignments where you'll go home and you'll have to ask other people about you, your roommates, your wife, uh, your kids if they're old enough, uh, that kind of thing. Okay? Uh, so it's not like huge, heavy-duty homework. I want to keep the homework down, but I want the homework to count. And the homework needs to count in the sense of you're evaluating yourself and seeing what kind of a man you are. Build is primarily concerned to, de- to make sure that you are seeing what God wants uh, you to do in order so you know what to be. Um, that you're putting the disciplines in front of you that will shape you and shape your character. Um, our next layer of, of leadership development that we have that is H3 doesn't, it, it's not that it's not concerned with these things. SMED addresses these very same things every single time as well, but it's primarily more theological and um, exegetical. It's to train you in theology and to equip you to handle God's word in a way that is um, accurate and um, right. So um, we're primarily giving you a homework here that just focuses on your character and you evaluating yourself and then inviting your small group and the rest of the guys here into your self-evaluation. And so then you can express your small group time at the end of each time. You're primarily in that. Discuss your homework that you did and or whatever we talked about in the teaching time and it's just to build relationships with each other. A lot of you guys are new, and this is a great opportunity over the course of the year to get to know one another and to build some relationships. So today there will be no small group, uh, but there is an assignment that's a part of your handout, and we'll talk about that in just a minute. Um, But there will be small groups next time. Now, based on all that that I just poured out at you, uh, any questions, comments, or protests? You're always welcome to kick the tires. You can, you know. That's not a problem. I'm not afraid of that. Just be nice as you did. <laughs> Any questions? 
Jerry. Well, I'm kind of curious about I'm not asking this because I see myself ducking out later in the future, but yes. from last year to this year, has there been any such <coughs> different change or additions or difference? Um, in, in terms of the overall structure of things and the way things run and the main focal point of what build is, no. In terms of um, some of the things that will be taught, yes. I'm, I'm bringing in new material um, at some points along the way. Um, based on passages that I'm always looking at, I'm, I'm trying to always develop a, a few more passages and things like that. So some of that will change. But overall, uh, if, if, if you ran it last year and then you ran it this year, you'd go, I think that looked pretty much like the same thing. Um, however, it'll have um, just a, a little different emphases here and there. And hopefully we never say exactly the same thing the same way twice. Um, but are just building on it. So it's a good question. Any other questions? No? Let's do this. I want you to take a, uh, about a five-minute break so you can get up, move around, meet some guys, get something else to eat or drink, use the bathroom, come back, and we'll uh, jump into God's Word together, okay? So take about a five-minute break or so. All right, guys. Come on back. And we'll uh, press on. Okay. Take your um, take your handout thing that I gave you that has a few different pages paper clipped together, and you can pull that apart. Usually, um, every Saturday we get together. I'll give you like a little quote on a little piece of paper like this. It's just. Um, something that I read somewhere that ties into something about build. It doesn't have to necessarily tie in with each week's lesson or whatever we're going to teach, but something that captures the, the something of what build is about. And I've got this one from Spurgeon. He says, if we doubt God's word about one thing, we shall have small confidence in it upon another thing. Sincere faith in God must treat all God's word alike. For the faith which, which accepts one word of God and rejects another is evidently not faith in God, but faith in our own judgment, faith in our own taste. And that is really the way, that captures the, the posture that we want to have when we come to God's word. And that is a very, very low posture. That God's word is over us, and we are under it. Our intellect and our way of thinking is not over the Bible, and the Bible has to submit to the way that we think, and it has to run through our grid, but we have to run through its grid. It evaluates us, it sifts us, and we want to have sincere faith in all of it. So I'll let you guys chew on that a little bit. I'll let you take the next two um, sheets. Um, this is what we're going to be working on today. Uh, primarily... Um, what we're going to do at the beginning of each category, at least, uh, the first two categories, is we're going to start with a biblical survey of the heart. Um, there's a time and a place to do something like this. It's really helpful to be thematic, to pick the topic of the heart, and then walk through the Bible. And I want to do it in a particular way. I want to, with each of the uh, different categories or dark, bold stated uh, points there, one, two, three, and four. I want to start in the Old Testament, 
and I want to walk through the New Testament. And then when we get to the next point, I want to start with the Old Testament, and I want to walk through to the New Testament. So we're always going to end with a New Testament passage, and there's a reason for that. It's because Scripture was unfolded progressively. Um, God revealed what he wanted to reveal at the time to early on to the, the his people in the Old Testament, and he did it, and he gave them exactly what he wanted them to have, what they needed to have a saving relationship with him. But as we know, he built on that, and he built on that, and he built on that, and he built on that, and, and Scripture unfolds progressively. And so we want to just take these subjects and just kind of walk through Scripture the way that God set up his Bible. And so we're going to do that together this morning on the heart. Um, but I want to start, and uh, did you guys hear... Um, on September 3rd of this year, just a, a couple weeks ago, in India, in one of the poorest sections in India, provinces in India, a baby was born with its heart outside its chest. And when I searched for this and, and, and looked at this um, to find this story so, so I could get some more on it because it was fascinating to me, I actually found this happens several times. This happened several times. Um, and so you can read about different babies that were born. And for whatever reason, the heart is on the outside of the body when the baby is born. Now, this child, born in one of the poorest sections of India, the parents, there was no hospital in its village where it was at, so the parents got on a train and took a 700-mile train ride to get to the next largest city in order to have somebody do something about this heart. And um, it's, it's an amazing story. The biggest challenge for that little baby was his own heart. His own heart. Something went wrong in the pattern of development, and that little guy's biggest problem is his own heart. And his only hope is that if doctors can get his own heart back inside him. Now, to me, that is just has interesting parallels and huge divergences from us. Differences that I want to talk about this morning. Spiritually speaking... What do we have that is similar in our hearts? Well, our biggest challenge, spiritually speaking, is our own hearts. Um, that little guy's biggest problem is not his parents. It's not his home life. It's not his environment. It's not his poverty. It's his own heart. And that is our biggest challenge as well. It's not your environment. It's not your family. It's not your upbringing. Uh, it's not your wealth status. It is your own heart before the Lord. Not the one, not the organ that pumps the blood, but your spiritual heart before God. Um, but here's where the major differences lie between us and that poor little baby. The baby's physical heart is on the outside of him causing problems. But God says your spiritual heart is on the inside of you causing problems. His physical heart is on the outside of his body and it's causing him all kinds of problems. Your spiritual heart is on the inside of you and it's causing all kinds of problems. It's like something that is oozing toxins into your body and it has to get out. And here's where another difference lies. Whereas the baby's only hope was to get his own heart inside his body, 
our only hope is to get the heart that's inside of us out and to get a new heart. And God has a new heart to give at the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, everyone in that little guy's life is focused on his heart. They're not concerned right now so much if he has ten fingers and ten toes. They're concerned about his heart. And you and I need to be... uh, Entering into a lifestyle, if we're not there already, where we are perpetually concerned about the heart, your own, primarily. So that's what we want to embark on today is, and for the rest of our time together throughout the year is just really focusing on the heart. So let's start with your handout, and let's just, number one, answer the question, what is the heart? And we'll do that as soon as we pray. Can you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we open your word, we really want to um, demonstrate that we understand how important it is that our hearts come and they interact with you. Father, I confess that oftentimes my heart is just cold toward you, numb toward you, unable to respond or have feeling, it it seems. I pray, Lord, that... uh, in spite of the coldness of my heart or our hearts, we would still come because we know that what can warm our hearts and make them soft and give them feeling, spiritually so, before you, is your word. And so this morning we come and we bring ourselves before your word with this main desire that that you would reveal to us yourself, that you would reveal your son to us in the gospel that you would help us to see what he did at the cross for these hearts of ours. And Father, we pray that this would um, help us to see and become convinced that we cannot live a life that is full of neglect of our hearts. So please do a work in us this morning. Meet with us and give us your spirit that we might understand your word. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. What is the heart? Here's just a a general way to understand the heart according to Scripture. The Scripture basically teaches that your heart is the most important component of you. It's the most important component of man. The the way that I view it is, is it is command central. It's the bridge on this starship enterprise or whatever it is. Okay, it's the place that is the central place where you want to be, where all of the main activity takes place. It is, according to scripture, it is the focal point of God's evaluation of us. When he comes and stands before us, he's not going to neglect your heart. When we come and stand before him, he's not going to neglect your heart. The heart is his focal point. So why is God concerned to evaluate us there? It's because this, my thoughts are born in my heart. And your thoughts. And our will is born in the heart. Our emotions are born in the heart. Our attitudes, our desires, our deeds are all birthed in the heart. But not only are they birthed in the heart, my thoughts, my will, my emotions, my attitudes, my deeds, my desires, they are also nourished there. And they are weaned 
to maturity there in our hearts. They are shaped in our hearts. And ultimately, our hearts become Cape Canaveral and launch every thought, word, will, emotion, desire, deed. Everything comes from the heart and is launched. So from birth to launching, from birth to sending it off to college, there is your heart and your thoughts and everything that come in there. So let's go to number two. And I would probably word it differently now. Here's how I would ask the question, and I changed it for next year, is what is the condition of the human heart? And obviously it's devastated. What is the condition of the heart or what devastates the human heart? Let's go to Psalm 40. And let's take a look at God's word. Psalm 40, verse 11 and 12. Psalm of David, the great psalm of comfort. Verse 11, you, O Lord, will not withhold your compassion from me. Your loving kindness and your truth will continually preserve me. Here's why I'm thinking this. Here's my explanation. For evils beyond number have surrounded me, and my iniquities have overtaken me so that I'm not able to see. They are more numerous than the hairs of my head, and my heart has failed me. Listen, what I need my heart to be, it has failed at being. What you need your heart to do, it has failed to do. It has failed you. Now, notice the list he makes in verse 12. Number one, evils. Evils beyond number have surrounded me. Number two, iniquities. They've overtaken me so that I'm not able to see. They're more numerous than the hairs of my head. And number three on the list, my heart. Now let me ask you a question. Would you have thought to include your heart in that kind of a list? Evils first, and and it's not in terms of, of importance or what is worse at the top, but just these three things. Evils, iniquities, and my heart. Here's the condition of the heart. It, it's, it's failed. It's failed you. Let's go to Proverbs chapter 20, verse 9. And again, if you have comment you want to make or jump in with anything, feel free to do that along the way, okay? Proverbs 20, verse 9. Yeah, Lewis. On uh, Psalm 40? Yeah. Which says, uh, I cannot see. Isn't that one of our bigger faith also would devastate our condition. Because if we cannot see that we're doing wrong and the burden of what we're putting out, the goal of the accomplishment of the heart, then we have failed in everything because we can't but go from point A to, to the finish line, you know, by skipping around the track. Right. We have to go through the steps and that's good. thus if we cannot that's see, blinded by whatever has encompassed our or covered our eyes. That's right. And that's, that's, a, that's another way of describing the, the condition of the heart. There's a, there's, a, there's a spiritual blindness to us. Absolutely. That's a good observation. Very good. Proverbs 20, verse 9. Who can say, I have cleansed my heart. I am pure from sin, from my sin. Um, 
the obvious answer to the question is no one. The stain of sin and impurity is so powerful in my heart that I do not possess what is necessary to come and cleanse my heart and to purify it. I just don't have it. And there are no exceptions to this. The answer to the question, who? Is no one, according to God. So I have a heart that fails me. I have a heart that is beyond my cleansing abilities. Let's go to Matthew 15. So we worked from the Old Testament, just looking at a couple verses on this. We're moving to the New Testament. Matthew 15, verses 1 to 20. I'm not going to read all of it, but I want to give you the background on it. And John, I think this was the passage you were thinking of yesterday when we were talking. Uh, the Pharisees and the scribes are very concerned in verse 2. Um, and they came to Jesus. They said, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They do not wash their hands when they eat bread. Jesus says, well, here's the problem with all you guys. You're a people who honor me with your lips, but their heart, your heart is far from me. That's what God says through Isaiah. So they're not even concerned really about the heart. Now drop down to verse 15. <clears throat> Peter says, I need you to explain the parable about what you said in terms of it's not what enters the mouth that defiles the man, but what proceeds out of the mouth that defiles the man. And Jesus said, are you still lacking in understanding also? In other words, you don't get this? You don't get what I'm talking about? Verse 17, do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from somewhere. The heart. And it's those things that defile the man there in the heart. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. So, there's a source of defilement, and it's actually inside me. And this is what we're saying in terms of the little guy. I mean, his problem is his heart is on the outside, causing him problems. Our problem is our heart is on the inside, and out of that is coming this toxin, spiritually speaking, and making a mess of us. It's a source that defiles us. And let's go to Romans chapter 1. Familiar passage in regards to describing humanity. Romans 1, verse, actually put verses 20 and 21. 21 especially. Romans 1, 20 and 21. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. God started things all off in such a way that it was clear that he is there. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart foolish heart was darkened. You say, well, what's the proof of the foolishness here? It's this, that even though we knew something of God from creation, we have no intent at the heart level to honor him as God. That's pretty foolish. And a foolish heart, a foolish heart um, plunges us into darkness, spiritual darkness. So here's, here's, here's what we found so far. Um, I have a heart that fails me. I have a heart that is beyond my cleansing. And the source of defilement within me is my own heart. And my foolish heart invites even greater spiritual darkness. That is what the Bible says about our hearts. Now, obviously, that's not everything the Bible says. But that is a huge, huge problem. 
So uh, the next question that comes up to my mind is, well, is the heart alert to this? Does my heart, is my heart aware of this? Is your heart aware of this problem? Let's go back to Deuteronomy chapter 11. Deuteronomy 11. <clears throat> By the way, I think that the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy mentions the heart 45 times. When was the last time you read Deuteronomy? You missed 45 windows into the heart. Don't want to miss it. Deuteronomy 11, verse 13. Watch this. Moses says, It shall come about, if you listen obediently to my commandments, which I am commanding you today, to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and all your soul, that he will give the rain for your land in its season, the early and the late rain, that you may gather in your grain and your new wine and your oil. He will give grass in your fields for your cattle, and you will eat and be satisfied. So if you listen, if you're obedient, God will bless you. So what's the context here? Obedience and blessing and a fruitful life from God. And what does he say? Verse 17 or verse 16. Beware at that time that your hearts are not deceived. And that you do not turn away and serve other gods and worship them. Get this. Your heart and my heart is prone to deception. Especially in the face of obedience and the blessing that God gives. What are you saying to the Israelites? Guys, just because you're obeying me, even with all your heart and all your soul, and I'm pouring out my blessing on you, you better watch that thing called your heart. Because you'll become deceived and go after other gods. So the heart is easily deceived even when it is at its best following God. Go to Jeremiah 17, verse 9. Familiar passage on the heart. We'll come back to Jeremiah 17 again actually later and look at verse 10. But let's just look at verse 9 right now. Jeremiah 17, 9. You know it. The heart is what? No, that's not what it says. Not, it doesn't say the heart is deceitful. What does it say? It is more deceitful. And it doesn't even just say that. It says more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? So here's what Jeremiah is encouraging us to do. Make a list of whatever you find deceitful in the world. And nothing can knock the heart out of number one. Make a list of everything that's deceitful in the world and your heart will never be knocked out of the number one spot. It is that sick. In fact, it's so sick it's beyond your grasp. It's desperately sick. You can't even grasp it. You can't understand its condition. It's worse than I think. So I have a heart that's easily deceived even when it's at its best and my heart itself is the most excellent deceiver. Go to Romans 16. Verse 17, Romans 16. Paul finishes out his instruction in the letter that he wrote to the Romans. And he says, 
I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned, and turn away from them. Why? Well, because such men are slaves. Not of our Lord Christ, but they're slaves of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. Listen, if we are unsuspecting people in the church, and there are troublemakers in the church that we are naive to, our hearts can easily be deceived. So, our hearts are easily deceived, even when they're at their best. My heart is the most excellent deceiver, and the people around it in the church can even deceive my heart. Let's go to James chapter 1 and finish out this section. James 1, verse 26. James 1, 26 and 27. Mainly 26. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. So if I think I'm religious but I don't have control over my own words, it's evidence that I have deceived, I've deceived my own heart. So I can deceive my own heart. There's just nothing but deception here going on. So is the heart alert to the nearness of its devastation? The answer is resoundingly no. How can it be alert to its own devastation when it is surrounded by uh, deception and when it is full itself of deception? A heart that fails me, a heart beyond my own cleansing, the source of my defilement. It's a foolish heart that invites greater spiritual darkness. It is easily deceived when at its best. It's the most excellent deceiver of all. It's deceived by others and I can deceive it through my worthless religion. Number four, what is the highest call of the human heart? God comes to us, and let's go to Matthew 22. We'll look at the New Testament repeat of Deuteronomy 6. Jesus takes that summary command of really what the law was all about and he repeats it for his disciples in Matthew 22 verses 36 to 38 you know one of them a lawyer of the Pharisees once the Sadducees were silenced, the Pharisees were silenced. A lawyer came up asking a question and said, Teacher, what, which is the greatest command in the law? What is the greatest thing, what is the highest thing a good Jew like me could, could be about? He said, well, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. That's it. That's the highest calling of the human heart, is to love God. So, let's see if I understand this correctly. My heart that failed me, my heart that is beyond my cleansing, my heart that is the source of my defilement, my heart that foolishly invites spiritual darkness, and my heart that is easily deceived when even at its best and is also an excellent deceiver itself and can be deceived by others and by me, and... That heart is the most central part of me, the most important component of me before God. That is supposed to love God? And not with just a part of it, but with all of it? All of it? 
I mean, are you kidding me? God, do you know what you're asking? I mean, what is this? I mean, my heart is so low, and what you've called my heart to is so high. God, do you see this? And that takes us to number five. Does God see this whole predicament? Go to 1 Kings 8. Solomon has finished building the temple. He is dedicating the temple. 1 Kings 8, 37. And he is praying the prayer of dedication. It's a long one. And he's pleading with God to hear his prayer and hear the prayers of those who come to this temple and pray to him. And this is a part of his prayer, verse 37. If there is famine in the land, if there is pestilence, if there is blight or mildew, locust or grasshopper, if their enemy besieges them in the land of their cities, whatever plague, whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer or supplication is made by any man or by all your people Israel, each knowing the affliction of his own heart, and spreading his hands toward this house, then here in heaven, your dwelling place, and forgive and act and render to each according to all his ways, whose heart you know. For you alone know the hearts of all the sons of men. God definitely sees my heart. He definitely sees the human heart. In fact, he is alone the only one who sees all of the hearts of the sons of men. So God sees this predicament. Go to Proverbs 24. Proverbs 24, verses 10 to 12. God sees indeed. In fact, he's the only one who sees it rightly. Proverbs 24, verse 10. If you are slack in the day of distress, your strength is limited. Deliver those who are being taken away to death. If they're in their day of distress, you don't want to be slack in the day of distress because you won't have strength to help them. Deliver those who are being taken away to death and those who are staggering to slaughter. Oh, hold them back. Now, if in that time then, when that's happening, you see people who are in need and and you do nothing, David says... If you say, then, well, we did not know this. In other words, it's a deception. Does he not consider it who weighs the hearts? Doesn't God weigh that in your heart? And does he not know it who keeps your soul? And will he not render to man according to his work? So not only is God weighing our hearts, not only is he testing us, putting our hearts in his scale, but he's weighing so as to repay us, to render to us according to what we do and don't do. So yeah, he sees, and he sees for the purpose of repaying. Go to Jeremiah 17 again, and let's go to verses 9 and 10. Jeremiah 17, verses 9 to 10. The heart is more deceitful than all else and it is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Verse 10, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. I search the heart. I test the mind 
even to give to each man, each man. This is why God searches and tests. It is to give each man what he deserves according to his ways. This is There's no broad, impersonal repayment that is going on by God where he just in general repays a whole group of people. He comes to each one and he evaluates, he weighs, he tests, and he repays. And then he moves to the next guy. Scott? Yes? Just to go back a little bit and just hear this verse, too. How does the Greek and, I guess, you, you separate the soul and the mind? I mean, what are the yeah. definitions for it? Yeah. It, that's, a, that's a very good question. Um, there's a lot of overlap between them. Um, uh, I can speak more to what goes on in, in the, on the Greek side, in the New Testament. But what you'll see, like in the, in the great command, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. You're not to walk away from that going, okay, I've got to figure out where my heart is and love God with all of that over there. And then I've got to go run over and find the part of me that is my mind and love God with all of that over there. And then I've got to go find my, you know, that's not the point. What, what is he doing? He's taking turns and he's making a big pile saying, look, let me just say it in as many different ways as I can. It's got to be all of you. It's got to be the main component of you. It's got to be what you are. Now, if you want to emphasize that part of you, that main component of you that does the thinking and has thoughts, in the New Testament, the guy will say mine a lot. But you'll see in Hebrews 4, 12, that the word of God is able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Well, why didn't he say mind? Because you know we think of heart as not the place where I think. I think of my mind as where I think. But that's not the way they thought. So you can refer to uh, the heart as a place where there's thinking. But if you really want to emphasize the reasoning processes, you don't use heart as much as you use mind, uh, at least in the New Testament. So there's overlap and there are differences that you can accent what you want to accent when you want to accent it. Um, and so when he is saying, I search the heart, I test the mind, he's not saying I necessarily do two separate things that are not related to each other. He's saying, let me say it another way. There's nothing of you I'm missing when I do this. Okay, And there, are, there of course, there are degrees of emphasis different, but primarily it's, it's talking about the same kind of thing going on. Um, so he does all of this in order to come and give personal repayment, but only after he has searched. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. See what Paul says. Paul had trouble with the Corinthians. It seemed perpetually so. And he says, and you know, a lot of his problem with them was how they regarded him, how they thought of him, what they, how they were treating him. And he says, let a man regard us in this manner. I'm just going to tell you guys, here's how you should think of us. As servants of Christ and as stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. But to me, it's a very small thing that I actually be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself. For I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. The fact that I haven't, I can't, I've, I've looked, I can't see what's wrong in my life. But even in saying that, that doesn't mean I'm free. 
but the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. What Paul is saying in verse 4, I'm conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. He is saying, I understand Scripture's trajectory about the heart. The heart deceives. And I can, even though I don't see anything wrong with what's in my life, that doesn't mean I'm free before God. So he understands the trajectory of Scripture in regards to the heart. But he is saying in verse 5, look, the Lord will come and he will bring a light to disclose what is the motive of men's hearts. So does God see this whole predicament? The answer to this is absolutely yes. In fact, he's probably the only one who sees it. Well, he is the only one who sees it truly as it is. But not only does he see what the heart is all about, but he searches it for the purpose of repaying it, rendering paybacks. So then, what is the greatest need of the human heart? Number six, I'm going to give it to you in two parts. Down to the bottom of your page. Does your page end with James 4.8? Yes. Okay, if you just kind of draw a dotted line down at the bottom, this will show you where the two parts um, end. So you'll see it goes Deuteronomy to James, and then when you turn over to the other side, it then goes to, um, it starts over at Deuteronomy again and goes through Acts. So there's kind of a, a two-part answer here. Here's the first part of the answer. What is the greatest need of the human heart? First, in these first five um, passages we're going to look at, is God calls you to do something about it. <coughs> That's right. God calls you to do something about your heart. He says you are responsible. You are culpable for the condition of your heart. And you need to do something about it. Uh, let's skip over the Deuteronomy passage and let's go to Jeremiah. <coughs> Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 4. God is God was this way with his people all from the beginning. He said, Israel, you're culpable. Look what he said to him in chapter 4, verse 4. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord and remove the foreskins of your heart. It's a command to you, Israel, do this. Do this, men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, or else my wrath will go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. Now, just, just for a second here, notice something. <clears throat> God's concerned about the evil of their deeds. And where is he saying that you fix this? At the heart. Okay? Heart, wrath, and deeds. Your heart needs to be fixed. My wrath is coming because of your evil deeds. Um, so he is saying to Israel here, there needs to be a radical removal, like circumcision is, of all that is wrong with your heart, or else judgment. Look at verse 14. Wash your heart from evil, O Jerusalem. Why? So that you may be saved. How long will your wicked thoughts lodge within you? These are your wicked thoughts. They are in you. How long are you going to keep being this way? So here he is commanding them to do the very thing that we've already discovered in Proverbs. You can't do. Wash your heart. But I, who can cleanse the heart? No one. So here he is, putting them at a conundrum, at a 
at a dead end. You're responsible. Do something about this. Go to Ezekiel chapter 18. That's right. We said Ezekiel. We're not afraid to turn to Ezekiel and build. Verse 30. We're going to go to even other places with far more crispy white pages in this. <laughs> oh, sweet! Bring your picture Bibles. Let's bring them. That's great. Love it. Proverbs, or I'm sorry, Ezekiel 18, verse 30. Um, Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, each... Notice the emphasis on each. Each according to his conduct, declares the Lord God. Repent and turn away from all your transgressions so that iniquity may not become a stumbling block to you. Cast away from you all your transgressions which you have committed. And here it is. Make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. For why will you die, O house of Israel? I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord God. Therefore, repent and live. Make a new heart for yourself. Make a new spirit for you. In other words, wait a minute. You mean, God, you want me to make the most important part of who I am before you? You want me to make what births and nourishes and brings to maturity and raises and shapes and launches all of my thoughts, my will, my emotions, my attitudes, my deeds, my desires? You want me to make that, a Jew would say, hopefully? The command is to them, do this. I hope this is making you feel very uncomfortable inside because it was to make them feel very uncomfortable inside. Go to Joel chapter 2. You can help each other get there. Joel chapter 2. Remember Daniel, Hosea, Joel, as you finish out from the major prophets. Joel chapter 2 verse 12 yet even now declares the Lord return to me with all your heart and do it with fasting weeping and mourning and rend your heart (coughs) tear your heart not your garments what was the and it's still today what's the custom when something tragic happens or awful or sad what do they do tear their clothes sign a deep Sadness and grief. God says you need to do that to your heart. You do that to your heart. Now return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and relenting of evil. Who knows whether he he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him. Return to God with deep sadness for what you've made of yourself. Tear your heart at the very heart level of who you are, show deep grief and sadness and brokenness. Now, just so you understand that this is also a New Testament command at a certain level for the Christian, for the James 4, verse 8. Even in the New Covenant, the command is the same. James 4, 8. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts. Hands to the heart. 
you double-minded. Purify your hearts. But again, Proverbs 29 said, uh, who can say I've cleansed my heart? <coughs> who can say I'm pure from my sin? The answer to that was nobody. So here's the greatest need of the human heart is that we would do something about it and we are commanded to do something about it. Simultaneous to that, secondly, and this is over on the other side of your page now, simultaneous to the command to do something about your heart, guess what God says? Guess what God says he will do? He will actually be the one to do that for you. God is the one who's going to do it. Let's walk through the passages to see this. Go back to Deuteronomy chapter 30. Deuteronomy 30 verses 1 to 10. Particularly verses, uh, verse 6 is what we want to look at. Look at verse 1. Deuteronomy 30 verse 1. It shall be when all of these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you then call to mind, call these things to your mind, in all of the nations where the Lord your God has banished you. So he's, look, they haven't even entered the promised land. And he's saying, there's going to come a day when you're going to remember when you've been banished to all of the nations. In other words, he's on the other side of the promised land now. Um, so before they even get in the promised land, there's going to come a day when you're going to recognize that you're in Babylon and you're in all these, Syria, uh, in Damascus, you're in all these different places outside the promised land. The blessing came on you and the curse came on you and scattered you. And you return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and soul according to all that I command you today, you and your sons. Then the Lord will, your God will restore you from captivity and he will have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are at the ends of the earth, from there the Lord will gather, God will gather you. And from there he will bring you back. The Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it, and he will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. This is an old covenant anticipation that a new heart is desperately needed. And it is a promise that God will be the one to provide what is desperately needed. Listen, from its earliest days, the Old Covenant made Israel long for the day when he would do something with their hearts. From the very beginning of giving the law at Mount Sinai and God setting up a covenant with Israel through Moses, they were to long from that day for the day that, for a heart that was able to do everything God said. <coughs> the old covenant is very interesting. It actually highlighted the need for a new heart without doing anything to provide it. Go to Psalm 51. A man under that old covenant named David felt this tension. David, under the Old Covenant, he knew what God's evaluation of, was of his own heart. And he knew of God's promise of making a new heart. He actually cries out in Psalm 51 for God to do that. You remember this is after his sin with Bathsheba. And he says in Psalm 51 verse 10, God created me a clean heart. 
and renew a steadfast spirit within me. He felt his problem so deeply. He, he knew his problem was so deep that it was beyond him and he's crying out to God to unite his powers as redeemer and creator. Creator, redeemer, redeemer, creator. Unite your powers and do in my heart, at the heart level, what I have to have happen that I am not capable of. He's crying out for help. Jeremiah 31. New Covenant passage, Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34. Jeremiah 31, verse 30, uh, chapter 31, verse 31. <clears throat> Jeremiah 31, verse 31. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It's not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke although I was a husband to them. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, No, the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. The new covenant is promised here. Its work and its focus will be at the heart level to do with the heart what the old covenant could not do with the heart. Go to Ezekiel chapter 11. We're probably spending some time in some passages or in some sections of the Old Testament that you, maybe you haven't been for a while. The Old Testament is pretty rich on the heart, is it not? Ezekiel 11. Let's look at verses 19 and 20. God says, I will give them one heart and put a new spirit within them and I will take the heart of stone out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes. You see, that was the way to take care of their deeds was to do a work at the heart level and they will keep my ordinances and do them. Then they will be my people and I shall be their God. This is a, a corporate expression of what God is going to do to them corporately. Corporately a new heart for this people. Go to Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36. And let's look at verses 26 and 27. The same line of promise here. Ezekiel says in chapter 36, verse 26, Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. I love that, cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. That's the promise of God. Now let's go to the fulfillment of that promise. Go to Acts chapter 2, verse 36. The day the promise got kicked off with the preaching of Peter at Pentecost, 50 days after Christ's crucifixion. Acts 2, verses 36 and 37, primarily. You know what happened? The Spirit of God came on the disciples 
and they were speaking in tongues, speaking the great things of God, and people are from all different languages on earth who were gathered in Jerusalem for the Pentecost feast. They could hear them all speaking great things about God um, in their own language. And they want some explanation for this. And so Peter gives up and he gives his first sermon. And this is what he says as conclusion in his sermon, verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain this, that God has made him, and he's been talking about Christ, Jesus. God made him both Lord and Christ. And here's what you did with this, Jesus. You crucified him. God thought this way about him. He's Lord. He's Messiah. And you crucified the Lord. You're Messiah. Now when they heard this, and it's all about the cross, it's about understanding what happened at the cross. When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, what do we do? Peter says, repent, be baptized. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. The new covenant in his blood has been inaugurated by this point, and the Holy Spirit of promise has been poured out and is present. And what happens at the heart level to those who hear Peter? It's being worked on by the preaching of the gospel. The work that God promised at the heart level is now starting. Go over to Acts 15. We'll finish out this section and draw into the home stretch here. Acts 15, verse 6. This is the Council of Jerusalem. Gentiles are believing. And this is a shock because what did Jews think? That God was primarily working with Israel. In fact, that's even what he said when he said the new covenant. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Now watch what happens. Um, Verse 6. The apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. In other words, he's pushing towards them the promise of the new covenant that he made to us, just like he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way they also are. So here's God cleansing their hearts by faith as well. So what has to be done here? Uh, We are called to do something. We are viewed by God as responsible. And concurrent to that, simultaneously to that, the way the heart changes is that we plead our inability. And we trust God to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. God does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Number seven. We'll just look at a few of these because we're being so... uh, You're full of endurance. That's good. Deuteronomy 6. 
bit more? Sure, on what? The distinction between, this, this comes up in, in more than just this, but this is a neat way you've laid this out. This tension between God telling us to do something that we can't do, that he does for us. Yeah. We can't be apathetic about it, right? That's yeah. why he tells us to do it, right? But we can't do it, so we can't try to. I think that the way that I've, I've been able, as I've been thinking about this even over the last week, I had a chance to teach this a week ago, and I, I think one of the main reasons that he says, you do this, is because, number one, we ruined the heart, our own hearts. But I think it's to, to, to emphasize that you're not off the hook. You are responsible. You are the one who is culpable before God. If you do not come to God and he does not cleanse your heart, there's only one person to blame, and it ain't God. Because you did this. And here is herein lies the mystery of the sovereignty of God in us. And I can't explain that. But I can point to both two things that are true at the same time and say, don't let go of either. You do this. You can't. And God will do it. Jerry, what are your thoughts? I was thinking about what you were asking there. And we here in the New Covenant administration, we understand that we can't do anything about it. Even in those days, they had to understand they couldn't do anything about it either. Right. And it would be the natural conclusion of a heart going in the right direction that they would understand that God has to act upon them to help them. Unless you're a person. Yeah, unless you're a Pharisee and you just think you can work on yourself from the outside. Well, the Pharisee was never complete. Right. 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 Jesus even said, be perfect. He did. Mike, what are your thoughts? Um, sorry, my wife and I were talking about this last night because we were reading some crazy pastor. And, um, just bring up the whole idea of free will and God's sovereignty. And I was thinking about just the definition of free will. And the way uh, those people who take more of our Arminian perspective on salvation don't really define free will properly because if you break up free will, you have freedom, which has to be given to us by who? A sovereign. And therefore, a biblical de- definition of free will would be that God, in his sovereignty, has graciously allowed us liberty to enact our own faculties to choose whether or not we're going to obey him, whereas the definition I think we are pumped into is that we perceive free will to be our own um, compulsion to do what we want, being allowed by God. So he sets us here, in other words, and says, I have given you these faculties to practice your own person, and I'm a, you're just willy-nilly do whatever you want. And that's not really what you see biblically. The idea of our free will is wrapped up in God sovereignly allowing us to practice those faculties within His sovereign decrees of how we live. That makes sense. Yeah. But we're, we're going in a, in a direction that um, is is full of a lot of discussion and, and lots of um, lots of mystery. Um, let's let's see if we can kind of summarize it in, in regards to in regards to our wills. We can only operate those wills within the condition that we have and we are fallen and so my will and my mind my heart can only operate within its spiritual deadness before Christ and yet 
I am said and called by God to do something about that. And I must be brought to a place by his grace, and so must you and anybody who's going to be saved, that I would say, I can't. I can't. Please, do for me what I cannot do for myself. And even then, when a new heart comes, that freedom is bound within its condition. I love God, and that will now needs to operate within that condition. So, if by free will we mean like neutral, not influenced by God, not influenced by evil, free to choose one or the other, whichever way we want to go, there is no human being like that. Because the Bible describes us clearly as what we are. So by free, if we mean like neutral, not influenced by evil, not influenced by God, I can freely choose what I want, that's a, that's a fallacy. Invented by man, not God. So... If we want to talk about that more, we can do that afterwards. Let's let's press on so we can get through the rest of this here, okay? Uh, let's see, where, where did we leave off? Oh, we just finished that section. Um, so we're called to do something about this, but God does for us what we cannot do. Number seven, what is God's provision for our hearts? Here's what I want to do. I want to trace God's thinking for what can come alongside our hearts with this predicament. And we're in Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And so they would have been thrust up against this. Oh my goodness. How? What? How does this even take place? Verse 6. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. Shall be on your heart. Here's what God intended from the very beginning as he thrust Israel into this conundrum. I want your heart and I want my word to be in a full contact sport together. My my words and your heart coming into contact with one another. Go to Ezra chapter 7. That's right, I said Ezra. (laughs) Ezra. Ezra knew this. He was a scribe. This is long after Israel has been booted out of the land, taken away, and now God is letting them start to come back. And Ezra is a scribe, and he's a good scribe. And he knew that the heart and God's word were to be in a full contact sport with one another. Ezra 7, verse 10. Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord. See, this is what we're talking about in terms of the discipline of discipline one. Ezra knew it. And so what did he do? Who set his heart? He did. He set his heart before God's word to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. He knew that. He knew his heart needed to be in contact with God's word. Psalm 119. Let's look at Psalm 119, verse 11. So we'll skip over Psalm 19 for a second. I'll let you look at that on your own. Psalm 119, verse 11. You know this. Some of the most famous words. You you probably memorized verses 9 and 11. How can a young man keep his way pure? Verse 9. Well, by keeping it according to your word. With all my heart... I have sought after you. See, that's what it's all about. My heart needs God. It's always been this way. It was this way under the Old Covenant for believers. 
The heart needs God. Now, most notice what he says next. It's not just any kind of a spiritual, experiential kind of thing. Look what he says. Do not let me wander from your commandments then. Because my heart needs you, and you're revealed to me in the commandments. Your heart, your word, I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. See, it's just a full-on, awful contact sport with the heart and the word of God. Let me remind you, we just looked at Jeremiah 31 down at the bottom of your page. Just remind you again, what does God ultimately say he is going to do in the new covenant? I will put my law where? On the heart. So I'm commanding you, Here's I've given you my word, get this word near to your heart. And by the way, ultimately, in the most ultimate way possible, I'm going to do it in my new covenant. I'm going to put my laws, my regulations on your heart. So in the new covenant, God is the one who brings that ultimate full contact hit that only the word must have on the heart. Um, Let's go to the New Testament. Look at Jesus in Luke chapter 8. Oh, we're close, guys. Hang in there. This is stepping up to the um, garden hose and putting it on full bore. And you open your little mouth and it just goes everywhere. Okay? You can clean up later. Um, Luke 8. Jesus tells this foundational parable about um, about the about God, a, a farmer sowing seed on different kinds of soil and he explains it in verse 11. Now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. Those beside the road are those who have heard, then the devil comes and takes away the word from their what? Heart. So that they will not believe and be saved. So you see, does the devil get this whole thing or what God's after? Uh Uh-huh. And he does not want God's word coming anywhere near your heart. Verse 13, those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. And these have no firm root. They believe for a while in a time of temptation they fall away. That is not what you want to have happen on your soil. Something sprout up only to die. <coughs> Verse 14, the seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard. And as they go on their way, they are choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life. And they bring no fruit to maturity. Okay, so you don't want the kind of soil at all that gets the word snatched away from it. You don't want the kind of soil at all in which um, the seed uh, produces a something that kind of falls down. And you don't want this here either where it gets choked out. Verse 15 is the only good soil out of the four kinds. The seed in the good soil. These are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good what? Heart. And they hold it fast, and they bear fruit with perseverance. And the question that should have been jumping off his hearers and, and that they should have been pleading to ask is, how do I get that honest and good heart? How do I get it? But you see, Jesus' intent is, look, your, the word needs to come into contact with what? Your heart. Drake. Um, does, does Satan have some authority to take the word from people's hearts that they hear? Uh, he... He, he must have okay. something, you know, to some extent in certain circumstances. Yeah. Or think, according to what that says there, he, he has a freedom to be able to do that. 
Um, but it's also clear, clearly restricted. Yeah, he doesn't have unlimited freedom to do that. Let's go to Luke 24. That's awesome. <laughs> I love it, man. That's time to wake up. <laughs> that is awesome. Luke 24. Let's look at uh, verses 25 to 27. Jesus has been raised from the dead. He's, he's joined up with two of his disciples who are walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus, about six miles or so. Um, and they're walking back after his crucifixion and his burial, and, and uh, they are just bummed. And he's talking with them, and he finally says, as he's explaining what has gone on, he says, Oh, foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Foolish men, slow of what? Heart. Your heart was too slow in its interaction with the word of God. Drop down to verse 32. They get to their place. They sit down and Jesus decides to eat with them. Again, they haven't recognized him at this point until he finally breaks the bread and then something in that makes them realize who it is. And they said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us while he was what? Speaking to us on the road. And what was he speaking? He was explaining the scriptures to us. Our hearts were on fire as he was teaching the word of God to us. And what was he opening in particular in God's word? Back in verse 25 and 26, the Christ had to suffer the gospel. Their hearts were burning when the gospel was being proclaimed to them by Christ. Jerry? I don't think it's coincidental that the Lord writes here in Scripture that if he was breaking the bread, their eyes were finally opened. Yeah. This, I have a little Jewishness in the background. The third piece of matzah that is broken is actually the third And, and what you've just said there is is, um, is, is absolutely true, and it's, a, it's at least half of, of what we were to do. We're going to talk about there's, there's more with that, too. That's, but you're right on track. That is the trend here. Now, one last passage, Hebrews 4. I referenced it earlier. Let's finish with this, and then we'll wrap things up. Hebrews 4, verse 12. This is a part of um, the author's... <coughs> Exhortation for them to be sure that they are diligent to enter into God's salvation rest. Um, and he gives examples all through chapter 3 and chapter 4 of believers in the past who were exhorted to God's rest and they didn't make it. Exhorted to rest and they didn't make it. And God gave these little smaller rests along the way that would make them, as, they, as Israel would obey those rests, like Sabbath rest, it would make them think of the greater salvation rest of God, and he is now exhorting these, not that this greater salvation rest has come in Christ. He says, 
be sure that you're careful. And then he gives them an explanation to help them. Verse 12. You see, it's the word of God that is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and is piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow. And it is able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. This is God's design for his word with you. Is that it would come near to your heart, that you would use it as a, as a surgical tool to help reveal the thoughts and the intentions that are going on inside your heart. There's no creature, verse 13, hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. So God's provision for us in this whole thing is he has given us his word. Now, let me try to summarize a little bit here. If all of this is true that we've said before, if my heart is a dismal failure, it is stained beyond my ability to cleanse it, it defiles me, uh, it's the source of defilement within me, it is foolish and wants to plunge me into further darkness, it is deceived about its condition, self-deceived about its condition, is the greatest deceiver, completely it is unaware of its own condition, and the calling for my heart is so high that I should love the Lord my God with all of that, and the Son of God came to suffer to bear away that heart in his body at the cross and and to give the new heart. And God intends his word to be the companion with me in all of that. What should be my attitude? What should be your attitude? What should be your posture? What should be your stance toward your heart? It should be this. Discipline one. That you would shepherd your heart to the word of God to meet with that God primarily. That you would bring your carcass before God's word as often as you can to know this God who did this through his son to bear away that heart that God says he will judge us for. Can you imagine God looking upon his son whose heart was only ever pure and what he put there was the old heart, yours. And he empties out his cup of wrath, not a drop left on that heart to pour out. And that is half the story. He took away what was wicked and awful. But, and this is where we as Christians need to do a better job of explaining the Christian life today. He gives a new heart. We become a new creature in Christ, do we not? The promise of the new covenant is a new heart comes. And that new heart, guess what? It has new desires. Did you not know this when you first got saved? You remember it? I, here's what I remember. I sat with the guys that I sat with the day before, the weekend before. I was in college, and we, after every calculus class, we went up to the library, and we did our calculus together, and we were the foulest bunch of guys that I knew anywhere. I got saved over that weekend. God gave me a new heart. I went up to the class, and after class, and sat in the library with those guys, and all of a sudden, it was like, oh my goodness. I am not the same guy I was. Because I know, I haven't even read my Bible a whole lot yet, and I know that what's going on here is ain't right. I wasn't bothered by it on Friday. I'm bothered by it now. Now why is that? Because God gave a new heart that had new desires. I didn't want that anymore. 
a new attitude, new thoughts to think. I didn't want to think those thoughts that those guys were displaying and, and thinking. New desires, new deeds I wanted to do. That's what God does in salvation. So the job is everything David said earlier. You come and you want to bring about a, a diagnosis of your heart. You want this to come close to be able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of your heart. And to expose in at the very core of your command central what is going on. You need that. But you also, as one with a new heart, you need to feed it. You need to feed it with the good desires that are there, that, that God says are there. You need to feed it with the, the good deeds that God says he made for your heart. We're going to talk about this tomorrow in Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. You need to feed your heart with this, your new heart, so that you have that heart functioning rightly, thinking correctly, acting wisely. If you are a man who does not do this, if you don't shepherd your heart to the word of God, number one, you're not being exposed to what's wrong with the core of your flesh and your, your humanness. And you're not feeding what God gave to you. A new heart. You are in no condition to do much beyond you. Because you're in no condition to care for yourself. So how can you care for a wife? How can you care for children? How can you step into small group and say, you know, here's what I'd like to encourage you with today. Really? My goodness. Take this the right way, but don't say anything. Don't say a word. Guys, men, shepherd your heart to God's word. Feed it with God's word so that you know him not so that you know facts merely not so that you uh, can win a theological argument that you need to win on Monday not so that you can fill your head with more whatever not so that you can have a, a sermon or a, a Bible study to be taught no come to the word of God first and most first and most to meet with God to know him you do that and you set yourself on a life a journey of that my goodness God will use you in amazing ways more than you ever thought or imagined to advance his gospel in the church and beyond the church mostly in your own life first shepherd your heart do it prayerfully so what does that look like tangibly speaking it looks like this open your Bible when you get home in the, when you wake up in the mornings when you're doing your quiet time when you're reading to your kids when you're with your roommates studying together, here's what you must do. Open the Word of God and you pray, God, if we don't meet with you right now, this is a waste of time. Please come. Meet with me. Reveal yourself to me. Show me who you are through these words. Feed this new heart that you've given me. Give me eyes to see where the residue of that old heart is still hanging around. Be dependent upon Him. You're not coming to merely check off the box. I read my Bible today. And you see, asking for accountability that says, hey, I want you to ask me if I read my Bible. Okay. Read your Bible? Yep, I did. Good, thanks for asking. Oh my goodness, we may have right there just missed everything. Even though you had the Bible open. Even though you read it. Because we really didn't get to the issue. What was your heart doing? You see? 
So this is primarily what we want to try to address in us for the rest of our lives, and especially over this year in Bill. Now, what I'd like for you to do in your homework, if you'll take a look at the orange sheet, okay? The orange sheet here. This will be due on Saturday, September 26th, as you can see. Just spend a little bit of time scratching out some, uh, you know, even right now as you're sitting there looking at it, put your name at the top so that you know it's yours because when we hand it in, a lot of times we get them in without names and stuff. But I just want you to run through these questions. I, I just want you to be honest. Look, it does, it does you no good if, if you're not honest, okay? And there's nobody here who has set up this expectation for you that if you fall short of it, you're going to be really looked down upon. Look, I'm just like you guys. I have weeks where it's, it goes well in terms of shepherding my heart. I have weeks where it's a real struggle. And we are in this together. So we want to pull together in a humble way, in a helpful way, to not condemn one another, but to help each other. Um, and sometimes that'll mean a kick in the pants, and we'll give it with love. Okay? What are your current daily or weekly habits of shepherding your heart into greater love for God with God's word? Write out whatever you think. What is your mind on when you open God's word? What do you hope to accomplish when you read? What part does prayer currently play in your reading? The more you recognize this and the more you understand this about your heart and what needs to happen when the word of God is open, the more you'll pray while you read. Because you'll be like, oh my goodness, I just read for I don't know how many minutes and I don't think I paid attention to anything that was on the page. My eyes are just looking at words. Oh God, how did that happen? Help me. I mean, you'll just become so much more dependent as you read. What throughout the day, start observing your life over the next two weeks. What throughout the day quenches or hinders your love for God? Obviously, sin. Try to get a little more specific. Um, but what is it? What habits undo your attempts to shepherd your heart nearer to God with his word? And then what's your plan going to be to bring those habits to an end? By grace, of course. What habits help you express and even promote your love for God? How will you plan to increase those? habits daily and weekly. Okay, so I just want you to interact, evaluate yourself a little bit, come back and bring that. We'll talk about that in a small group next time. Okay? Now, I know how I felt the first time I heard this. Um, I was I was in a year long struggle to get out of it about eight years ago. Because I realized I was interacting with God's word in such a way where I was not, it wasn't as good as it should have been. It was falling far short of what God intended. And it was a challenge for me. It was, it was discouraging to hear. Listen. Jesus is this kind of Savior. Listen to me. Jesus is this kind of Savior. Peter was not shepherding his heart well at all. In fact, he was pretty confident the night before Jesus died. Uh, I've checked inside. I've got everything it takes to go with you the distance, Jesus. I'm going to go the full distance. I'll die with you. Peter, you're going to deny me three times. Not me. That is a man who is terribly unaware of what his inward condition is. And he was so distraught by that, even after he had seen Jesus raised from the dead, that he basically made the conclusion, Luke 20, guys, I'm going fishing. I'm going back to what I was before Jesus called me. Because 
I'm pretty sure there's, I'm, I've gone over the edge. And what does Jesus do with disciples like that? What does he do? He comes and he finds them. And he pulled Peter up on the beach and he said, Peter, are you going to start reading your Bible more now? <laughs> are you going to knock this foolishness off now? Are you going to stop being an embarrassment to me? Is that what he said? No, he went right to the core of it and he went right to what he knew Peter knew it was all about. Deep back and underneath it all. But what did he say to him? Do you love me? Because that is what Peter wanted to, or that's what Jesus wanted to come and he wanted to protect and he wanted to nurture and he wanted to fan that love for him into a fire, a blazing fire. That is your Savior. If you find yourself in a place as you hear this today where you feel like you're where Peter is, good news for you. You've got a Savior who loves to come after disciples like that and does. And he will put love for him back at the center of what it's all about. It's all about shepherding your heart to come to the Word of God to meet with the one that you love. Okay? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we rejoice to know that, the, that your Son is indeed that kind of a Savior um, who bears with foolish disciples, eager disciples who um, in their foolishness play leapfrog over their hearts and play leapfrog over their household relationships and just jump and run and are not even ready at all and have forgotten the core thing of love for you. And so, Father, we are counting on you being that God in our life, your Son being that Savior in our life, and we plead with you to be this and, and accomplish this in us. Come find us wherever we may be, regardless of what we've been doing with our hearts. Come and meet with us and draw near to us. Nurture and fan into a great, unquenchable flame love for you. And that love is there because you gave it in the new hearts. There was no love for you in our old hearts. But you came and you took that hatred for you that was in the old heart and you put it on your son and you emptied your cup of wrath on him. Your wrath is exhausted. There's none left. And you gave a new heart that is full of love for you. So God, help us. Help us to evaluate, but help us to do it in light of the gospel so there is hope for our self-evaluation. Oh God, what would we do if we had just evaluated but put the gospel off to the side? We would be in despair. We would be worn out. We would be motivated by guilt. We need your gospel. And we come back to the cross again this morning and remind ourselves of a Savior who comes, who gives a new heart, and who protects us and holds us firm to the end. And help us this year to help each other as we shepherd our hearts to you and your word. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Guys, thank you so much for coming today. Two weeks, September 26th, we'll be here. Watch your calendar carefully, though. It is not strictly every other Saturday. Okay, so don't think, oh, I didn't have Bill this Saturday, so it must be the next Saturday. There are some Saturdays throughout the year where there's actually two Saturdays in between. So make sure you look at the dates and not just every other Saturday. Okay, thanks for coming, guys.